0: Um, uh, uh, trying to always succeed and grasp onto, but it, our lives will be marked by uh, resting in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the uh, uh, early uh, stages of a series of messages that uh, we... are we're calling a heart and mind at rest, and the theme is anxiety, and we're looking at it from different angles. Today we're looking at the subject of success, which is very much linked to anxiety, the longing for success or, and, and or the, the fear of failure. I, I suppose in previous generations, this would have been slightly less of a concern Uh, for people because um, you didn't really need to prove yourself as an individual in previous generations. We tended to have what uh, sociologists called ascribed identities. Uh, You were the group you belonged to, the family you belonged to, the tribe you grew up in. even the industry that you were a part of, if you grew up in a coal mining area or in an agricultural area, uh, if that was your industry, if it was your job, or, or even if you were in a profession that was passed on through generations, you tended, uh, it, it, that tended to reduce the number of decisions uh, you had to make. Your path was more or less made for you. And and that may, from our point of view, seem a a little bit limiting, a little bit narrow, uh, but it certainly meant that there were less causes for anxiety, less decisions uh, that had to be made, less pressure to have to... Try and start to, you know, to set out and, and, and make your own stamp on the world, to set your own path, to, to establish before the world who I am. It didn't really matter. It, I, I, I didn't need to because I, I, was, I, I was who I was because of who I belonged to. And certainly that's changed in our day and age, and, and it's changed in a big way, and so we feel the pressure to achieve and to validate our individual status. And, and, and we'll feel this in different ways as we go through life. So I know as I talked this morning, I talked to people who are in all different stages of life, different age groups, d- different demographics. Uh, I came across a quotation from a writer called Gordon MacDonald who, who talks a little bit about this in terms of how it, uh, it affects different age groups. And he just points out quite helpfully, teens tend to ask the question, who am I? what am I becoming? Twenties tend to ask the question, what am I going to do with my life and with whom? Thirties will ask the question, now that I have all these responsibilities and obligations, how do I manage all these priorities? Forties will ask the question, am I a success or a failure? Fifties will ask the question, as I move into the second half of life, who is this younger generation that wants me out of the way? And how do I cope with the disappointments in my life? Sixties will ask the question, how much longer can I do what defines me? Or do I change? Seventies ask the question, how do I live with loss? And people in their eighties ask the question, does anyone remember who I once was? Now, I reckon that that's a fairly helpful summary of the kind of questions, the kind of reflections that will be going through our minds at at the various stages of life. And it, it can happen in a very natural, I suppose, relatively easygoing way. But there is a raw version of each of those questions that can plague our mental health and bring us to exhaustion in different ways at different stages of life. And so I want us to look at some verses in the Bible which I believe if we understand them properly have explosive potential to, for for helping us to reorient our lives and our Our perspective. So let's read the passage. Um, You'll find it in your worship folder. It's a short passage from Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One of the unique things about the God of the Bible is that from the very beginning, he gets directly involved in work. He gets his hands dirty, you could say. Uh, that's how he, uh, he's depicted in the very f- uh, first couple of chapters of the Bible, f- forming humanity from the ground and human beings be- you know, getting busy uh, with work in paradise. God ordains, God models work, God's happy with work in a perfect world. The first human beings living in a perfect world with responsibilities, with challenges, with tasks before them. But I want us to notice that not only does God speak highly of work, but also of the fruit of work, success, that, that, that work is pointed in a direction. Sure. There, there are things to get done, things to achieve, things to, to, to look at as goals, tasks, vocation, and to be pleased and excited about them pleased in the pursuit of them, and pleased in the fulfillment of them, looking back and saying, it's good, it's done, I'm pleased, it's finished. Here's the work that I set out to do, and I have succeeded. The Bible is pro-success, very simply. And it's worth stopping on that and just meditating on that because there's so much that I have to say that will help us to rethink success and be freed from some of the dangers of misunderstanding it. But don't let anyone imagine that the God of the Bible is anything less than enthusiastic about success, about us as His image bearers, succeeding, being fruitful. Uh, being successful. He, he, he wants us to be f- fulfilled in the fruit of our work, to look back on our lives and say, look at what has been done. That's a, that's a good ambition. That's a, a good aspiration, and, and we can see it from the early stages of the Bible. And it means that for any human being to live their life without a sense of purpose and direction, to to drift, to to lack a sense of focus and occupation, to lack a sense of, 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 of drive and simply to passively, complacently you know, let life happen to them. That is a big deal. That is a, it, this is a problem. In fact, as far as the Bible's concerned, to live without meaning and purpose is unhuman. There's something subhuman. There's something not quite right about it. God wants for us to to feel the joy and the excitement, the wonder of tasks to to do, goals to achieve. And and you see that not just from the opening pages of the Bible, but as you go through and see the way that that God interacts with people's lives and how he tends to draw them into purpose. You know, when, when you meet God, you meet someone who's about something, and it affects your life. But there's a massive problem as well. The problem is that although we are therefore wired, we're, we're set up with a kind of success-focused DNA, it seems, we've somehow become disconnected from the source of life, the source of meaning. And by becoming disconnected about him, from Him, we don't, we don't have clear ideas about what life is about, the, the purpose of it. We don't really know what we're even for, ultimately. We, we, we know that there's something to do. We can't shake that instinct of, you know, I've got to achieve, I've got to succeed, I've got to do something with my life. That, that's wired into us from creation. But having cut ourselves off from the God of creation, this drive lacks direction. It's without reference to who it's for, what it's for, why it's there. It's a little bit like an electrical appliance that's not plugged in anymore. If you, if you saw a vacuum or a toaster and you, you, and you just didn't know what it was for, and if there was no such thing as electricity and there were no sockets in the world, but there were loads of vacuums around... You, you, you kind of, I guess, you, you, you'd start to invent different uses for them. You'd just start to say, well, this, is, this could be useful, you know, I don't know, to put my feet up on. as a coffee table. I don't know, well, you know what you could do. But, but the actual purpose, the meaning, the reason for which it was brought into the world, we're ignorant of it. And the Bible basically says that about us. That's our story. That we're here. We've got this kind of sense of, well, there, there, there must be something we're here for. We can't shake that sense of, of, of longing to pursue and to succeed, but, but we're not plugged into the source. And therefore, we don't even know what our potential is. We don't even know what our abilities are fully. Not really. We haven't tapped into the ultimate sense of purpose and meaning. And so work, success, success. Failure, all these issues become context for trouble, for struggle, for anxiety. And the result of it will be for many a simple sense of futility. I do stuff. I don't honestly know why I do it in the end. In the end, I I don't ultimately know why I'm doing this job. Now, you can feel like that, you know, a bit like that after a week of work, you know, if you if you work in you know data entry, it's tempting to feel that way sometimes. Just here I am temping in this office, and I can't I can't see the usefulness of what I'm doing. I'm just in a cubicle, I'm just tapping stuff in, and hours and hours and hours go by and it can feel just on a very simple level, a bit dehumanizing but don't imagine that that ultimate sense of futility gets shaken off completely if you do work that looks more significant or more noble. Because in the end, it's, it's going to, without God, with, in a godless universe, it's going to become irrelevant. What's the point? Even the most remarkable story of success will be forgotten in the end, eventually. I mean, Even in a room like this, I wonder how many of us here can remember the first names of all four of our great-grandparents. I'd be surprised if many of us could remember any of their names. And we're their family. We're their offspring. We're the people who surely ought to remember them. But a couple generations on, no. First, First names not even remembered. And if that's the case with family... If that's the case with the at the sort of nuclear level doesn't it suggest that within generations even the most successful of us in this city might find that we make for very little eventually, and it surely causes us to, to, to have to think what, what's life without ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning? What am I really pursuing? I've told this story uh, to you before, but it, I find it because I find it so vivid. There was a prisoner of war camp. In the Second World War where there were some soldiers who, who had been taken captive and they were given the task by the camp commander to, to move stacks of rock uh, from one end of the camp to the other. Just take this pile of rocks, this pile of rub- rubble from here to over here. And so they, they did it. They moved this pile of, of rocks, and it, it took them days and days, and it was exhausting, backbreaking work in the in the baking sun, but they did it. And when they'd finally done it, the commander then said, Right, now take it back. Take it back. Same thing, all reversed. And then in a kind of sickening, I mean, you know what I'm, I'm gonna say, this kind of sadistic, now take it back again. And eventually the prisoners of war started to commit suicide because such utter futility, such utter torturous meaninglessness is soul-destroying, dehumanizing, and it's not how we're meant to live. It's not what we were created for. You need to know that the that God created you not for that, but for purpose, for meaning, for, for destiny. Let no one doubt it. And you need to apply that mega-truth like an explosive to tomorrow morning, to the, the rest of your life, to the decisions that you're making, to your nine-to-five. You need to think, I'm going to come into this knowing, first of all, that God made me for purpose. And I'm not just here by accident. No, I'm here by intention. I'm here by design. And I need to catch up with the designer and, and, and start to understand. And we need to grasp this, understand it, because otherwise we'll fall into the trap of futility. We'll also fall into the trap of measuring success entirely on a horizontal level. Everything's about how I compare. My achievements, my successes or failures are entirely measured on a horizontal level. I'm shutting out the vertical. I'm ignoring the eternal. I'm ignoring the God who plans and designs and purposes my life. And so I can only suck in any sense of meaning and purpose from from comparing myself to, to how they're doing how she's doing, how he's doing, and it becomes a race. It becomes a kind of a a survival of the fittest sort of context. It becomes a kind of a a Hunger Games environment in the end where where really the goal is to win by defeating. If if I'm going to achieve, it's only by comparison to others. It's all horizontal, and that kind of drive will suck the joy out of you. That, That kind of drive, if that's what we're left with, Will become exhausting and you will sacrifice anything to it and people do success becomes the god instead of success being uh, there to serve god in, 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 instead success becomes god and when it does anything anything will go on the altar to that god i will put my marriage on the, on the altar if necessary I'll put my kids on the altar in the sense that I'll be prepared to not even pay attention to them. I'll I'll go through life so pursuing success that my kids don't even get to know me, and I'll, I'll pursue success to the point where my mental health, fragile as it already is, takes even more of a beating, because any God in your life other than the real one will harm you, and success is certainly an example. So we see the danger of being pulled out of the socket, if you like, futility, uh, exhausting sacrifice, and then finally the complete lack of fulfillment. Because even if you do succeed according to those demarcations, if you do everything that the world or the false expectations that are placed on you insist upon, you, you might succeed, you might achieve Brilliantly, apparently. But how many times have you heard the story of the Olympic medalists, for example? And this is just one picked at random. I think you know, there are so many examples. I remember a small documentary after the Summer Olympics a few years back where people who, who won the gold were asked the question, how do you feel after you've won? And without exception, they all said, all I can think about is the next race. I cannot enjoy this. The very thing that got me here is the drive that stops me enjoying it. The reason I succeeded is because of, the, because of a drive that does not allow me to stop, doesn't allow me, because it all comes back to she's training already. He got up early this morning already. I cannot afford to stop. I have to push on. Jim Carrey, the actor, uh, said a few years ago, I think everyone in the world should become rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of just so that they can find out that it doesn't work. And many of us, we, we hear that kind of stuff from celebrities and we think, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to, to say that. You always say that money and fame doesn't really bring, you, no, you know, success doesn't make you happy. And Jim Carrey said, okay, let me, let me assure you I think everyone should succeed to find out for themselves that we're not not kidding. In itself, it's ashes in the mouth. And in reality, we know that to be constantly concerned about how we're coming across and whether we're winning the race is not going to help us succeed anyway. I mean, the person that writes books in order to become a great writer or the person that writes songs in, in order to, you know, I'm going write, to write a song right now that everyone's going to think is amazing. You can kind of usually tell. Their focus isn't on the art, it's on the crowd. And it tends to be self-defeating. It, it doesn't tend to work. What we need is to find freedom from this condition. What we need is to be plugged back in. What we need is to kind of be restored to our uh, initial setting, our factory setting, where, where the successes that we pursued are pursued in freedom and joy and in response in the response of the love to, of love towards the one who, who, who made us for them. We, we want to pursue them because we love them, not because I must, in order that I'm going to prove that I'm not a failure. And these words that we find in Colossians chapter three are devastating in the best possible sense, that sort of constantly demanding and dominating drive that we either feel controlling us or at least speaking loudly to us, the temptation to pursue success as a God itself, the, the temptation to measure ourselves against others as a way of, of, of being a valid person. These words in Colossians 3 change the whole story for us. They, they, they have the potential to rescue us because the Bible here speaks about something that has happened to those who belong to Jesus, something that has happened. You have been raised. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him. Paul, who writes this letter, is saying, this is your real story. This is your real identity. This is the story of your life. Now, people who feel the pain of failure will often subconsciously, maybe vocally or just in their own inner dialogue, say, oh, this is the story of my life, story of my life. I've failed. It's the story of my life. You feel you get into that horrible cycle, that kind of harsh, habitual cycle of failure. It's the story of my life. And Paul comes in saying, no, no, in Christ there is an alternative and truer story of your life. Because the thing that Jesus has come to do is not simply provide us with an example. What Jesus has come to do is provide Himself as an identity for us. To say, by my kindness towards you, by my sheer goodness, I give myself to you fully. I will take all of your sense of failure. I will take all of your real failure. I will take all of your guilt and shame upon me. And you can have all of my perfect record of obedience, of sacrifice, of total success in everything that God the Father gave me to do. Everything that I have done for Him is passed to your account. This is now who you are. And on the cross, I became who you were. So Paul is saying, this is your story. You've you've died and been raised. Your life, whatever it seems like in the eyes of this comparison-demanding culture where you're not even valid if you haven't racked up a certain amount of of kudos, you're not even legit, whatever whatever it, it, it seems like, that is not your life because your life is hid with Christ in God. This is who you now are. This world keeps telling, uh, telling you that success means this, means this, means this, means this. And you need to get to the point where you can see through it, see that it's a joke, it's a joke. I know who I am. Because the true story is something is that something so real has happened and we now have participation in it that something so real as a death and a resurrection of another affects the course, the identity, the destiny of our life. It changes everything. It rescues me. It takes me away from the, the, the false drive. And, and my task then becomes, it becomes to align myself with this truth, with this reality. See, I can, I can persuade you of the theology of this. You can read these verses and say, yeah, I think I, I, I line up with that. Especially if you're a, a Christian here this morning, you think, yeah, that's true, I believe that. Maybe you're considering Christianity and you're thinking, yeah, I can see how that would work. I can sort of see how the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for me, exchanging his goodness with my sin and me being joined with him and raised with him, I sort of begin to get that. But really? Does that really count tomorrow when my colleagues don't really respect me? Does it really count tomorrow when I, I realize once again that I can't, I I cannot keep up with my mortgage? Does it does it does it matter this week when I realize that the project that I'm responsible for and everyone is waiting for me and looking on the deadlines? I I and I know I can't get it done in time and I feel like a failure? Does it really help? Does it really help when I know that I'm aiming for a 4.0 and I have to live with a 3.4? Does it really help? Does it really make a difference? It's lovely. It's a nice story. but, But what does it count if no one notices you? If no one respects you? And this is why Paul says what he says. This is why these verses are in the Bible. Verses like this are here because of how you feel. He says in verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. That's the task. That's the step of obedience we need to take. If we belong to Jesus, we've got to learn to do this. We've got to learn to set our minds. Because if you don't set your mind, if you don't say, I'm going to choose to believe this account. I'm going to line up with it i'm i'm going to enjoy it i'm going to reflect on it i'm going to sing about it i'm going to consider it often i'm going to let it affect me it's written here but we can just think well it's true that's good for me i'll accept that and then carry on an a, a, an emotional existence where our mental health is never affected by these verses We we don't allow it to. We simply don't allow these verses to touch what we see as real life. This is real life. That's just verses in the Bible. But what if we got it completely the wrong way around? This is real life. And this is just the emotions that haven't caught up with real life. It's like I've been looking through the, the, the wrong end of a telescope, and I've just been doing that for so long. I've never stopped to consider. And it may take time. Let it. Let it set your mind. Set over time the frame of your mind. Say, I'm going to line up. I'm going to align with this. You know, I'm married. I, I have a marriage certificate. I haven't looked at it since the day I got married. And marriage is only possible, surely, because every day I look at this piece of paper and just remind myself, yeah, yeah, I'm married. No, no, no. The piece of paper, in the end, it it was a necessity. It's good to have. You know, it's important. But my marriage with my wife has grown on from there. And my marriage develops as I get time with her, as we talk and, 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 and spend time. And similarly... We need to build relationally this union that we've come into with the one who is our life. So we align with him. The second thing we do is we reject something. We reject some things. We have to. We have to reject the false identities, the false narratives that society wants to place on us. For us, it will be success, failure. Success, failure. Because, you know, you've got that job not this job, or you haven't even got a job, or because, well, you're this and I'm that. In the New Testament was, well, you're Jewish and I'm Greek, or you're Greek and I'm Jewish. There were certain levels, you know, you're a slave and I'm free, you're male, you're female, certain levels of value are are ascribed, and Paul in his letter has to deliberately reject those things. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. This is your identity now. And learning to walk in that means rejecting some false narratives. This is, this is not who I've been ma- made to become. I've, I've been brought into union with this person and it changes the way I see myself at different stages. So many of us, the subject of success is painful because we measure our success by where we've reached on a certain ladder and sometimes we where we've reached the ladder is somewhere where where society disdains or does not value very much stay-at-home moms for example how much respect does mainstream society and santa rosa how much respect does it pay to stay-at-home moms as a career choice I can tell you not a great deal, not a lot of kudos, not a lot of Instagram, not a lot of, you know, because our culture, our society doesn't really vaunt it. So what are we going to believe? What are we going to choose to to accept? Now that's just one example. Think of the, the many other ways in which some of you, because of your job, Because you, maybe not even a a particularly respected job, have measured your success. Stop, consider, read these verses and think, could it be that by God's grace, I am a success already? I've become a success. This is the real narrative. This is who I truly am. And therefore, I'm not going to believe the lie anymore. I'm going to see through it. And, and this is difficult to, uh, uh, sometimes, especially in seasons of our lives. And it can be subtle. I can think of times when it's not so much the, the status or the position that I occupy, the, 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 the place um, on, on the chart that I'm, I'm in, but, but the season where I don't feel very productive. What do you do about those times when you just look at the last week or the last month or the last year and you feel next to him, next to her, I have produced nothing. I feel like I have got nothing done. And and it's a similar kind of pain and it's, it's a very easy trap to fall into. Allow that to sort of shape our identity. Sometimes the lack of productivity in our life is forced upon us by circumstances. An acquaintance of mine a few years ago went through a season where he was starting a new organization which wasn't flourishing. He was, he, he, he was working night and day to see it succeed, but, but, but couldn't. Partly because his wife went through breast cancer and um, a, a significant bout of insomnia and for months and months, it was, a, it was a massive destruction. He found he couldn't focus. He, he needed to be there for her. Everything seemed to be put on hold. I've just paused for a long, long time. And he, he found it exhausting emotionally. And at one stage, he turned to a very helpful, wise friend of his. And, and he said to him, I feel so unproductive. And I think this also applies for those who are in a season of their life, maybe where they've moved into retirement and moved into a time where there's maybe not a lot produced in their life. And so he said, I feel so unproductive. And this friend very wisely said, Jesus doesn't talk so much about being productive, he talks about being fruitful. Maybe we should change the criteria a bit. Are you being fruitful? Can you see any fruit in your life at the moment? And he stopped and he thought about God had helped him to be more patient over this period of time. How God had helped him to be more loving towards his, his wife. How he'd grown in his forbearance, in his servant attitude towards his children. How God, how God had helped him to, to trust in, in the father's sovereignty and timing. And his perspective shifted. Because he began to feel less concerned about how he looked and and and, and how much potency he was able to demonstrate. You know, I've 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 achieved these metrics. Look at the you know, you can you can count them. Nothing to count, but loads of fruit. Loads of fruit. And he could say, Jesus, thank you. I've been fruitful. That's success. By the grace of God, that's success. Sometimes we need to be set free from, from a distracting set of criteria. And then finally, we do need to aspire. In all of our rejecting of, of a, a world val, worldly valuation of success, don't for one moment stop pursuing success. God defines success. Pursue it with all your heart. Be ambitious. Let every man and woman in this church who knows what it means to know God start being ambitious. Start longing to do something fruitful with with the life that He's given you. But you do it because you know Him. It's not to uh, accumulate a basis for boasting. It's not to accumulate an identity because this is what you already have. In the Bible, it's talked about like this, having a name, I must have a name for myself. There's a story in Genesis 11 where the people, who built the, uh, the people who built the Tower of Babel, they built it to defy God. And the words that they used were to make a name for ourselves. Do you know that, that no one knows their names? Their names don't get in the Bible. These people said, we will build a tower so that we will make a name for ourselves. Their names didn't get in the Bible. And it's not because the Bible's not into names. Have you noticed? I mean, there's quite a, quite a few. There are pages and pages of names. Lots of, lots of names. And they're usually the names of people who weren't looking for a name. The people in the book of Nehemiah who built the wall. They just built it because they knew God had called them. They loved God and they wanted to serve God. They didn't care about anyone knowing their name. Guess what? Their name's God in the Bible. If you, if you long to succeed because you love God and your heart burns to do something for him, you might be surprised. You might be surprised. Your name might get lifted up one day. You, you might you know, get a lot of honor one day. Your name's definitely written in heaven. In fact, your name is written on his hands, the Bible says. Jesus knows your name. You are known by him partly because you let go of the desire to snatch at glory. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be snatched, humbled himself, made himself nothing, became obedient even to, the, even to the death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. To be focused entirely on building a name for ourselves is the most likely way to ensure that we won't make it that our names will be forgotten. God, I want to see you glorified. I want to enjoy and know you. I want to live free from the clamor and the panic. Let me finish with this illustration. You've maybe seen, you know, one of those uh, talent shows, American Idol, The X Factor, and the like, where... All the way through the contest, uh, maybe it's a singer on the X Factor and, and they've got to sing at every stage. And as the show builds to a climax, each, each round they're singing in competition with the other singers. If they sing well enough, they're through to the next round. If I sing well enough, I might succeed. What pressure? If I, if I, 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 I've got to sing well, otherwise I'm out, I'm done, that's it, that was my chance. But then there comes a point at the very end where someone wins. And what happens when they win? They sing one last song. I mean, can you imagine the difference in terms of the drive behind singing? If if, if I've got to sing to survive, I'll feel a bit different than if I sing because I've just, you know, I've already just won. I have just won. Imagine the relief and the joy and the freedom. Now, I ask you, if you follow Jesus, which are you supposed to be more like? Which is the way you live your life? Like the the singer who's singing just to survive, just to stay in? Or do you know deep down in your heart because you're taking verses like this into your heart, you're persuading yourself daily, Christ is my life. My life is hid with Christ in God. I will appear with Him in glory. I sing because I've won. And if the world doesn't even notice, my name is in heaven. My name's on his hand. And honestly, that kind of fruitfulness is worth in eternity what nothing in this passing age could even touch. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to help us to discover for ourselves the tasks to which you've called us, the gifts you've placed Uh, in us, the abilities that will make our vocation more fulfilling, goals able to be reached. Help us, each one of us, but help us as well to be set free and relieved from, from false pressure to see through the lies and to rest truly in the success that's already been provided for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Amen.